I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're a Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week, we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And in season two, we told you all the secrets about Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars. For season three, we're introducing you to the women that built, got burned by, and ultimately changed the alcohol industry. Make sure you add us on social media, at a tap on the wrist. We are so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Hi guys, I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And this is another episode of a Tap on the Wrist podcast. Yes. I forgot to look at what episode it was. I feel like this might be 76. Did we skip 75? I don't... Is this 75? No, I think this is this is 73. Our last episode was 72. Oh. Well, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know why. I'm just really excited for 75, I guess. <laughs> you like those round numbers. I guess. So this... Mm-hmm. We're recording this the day after Laura and I have gotten to experience some normality in our lives. Yes, we got in a car. Yes. Drove an hour outside of New York. Yes. And went brewery. New York City. New York City. Yes. And went brewery hopping. Yes. Um, (laughs) Yesterday was my two weeks since my vaccine dose, and I was like, I want to celebrate this, and Laura had made plans with another friend of ours to go to some breweries, so... So we took advantage of the beautiful weather, uh, went to some breweries, got to sit outside and breathe fresh air, fresh non-city air. Not that I don't love New York City, but sometimes getting that that nice, you know, suburban breeze is lovely. Yeah. Uh, I, I tried beer. <laughs> I liked it. Hold on. She didn't just try it. She enjoyed beer. Yes. Uh, for any of you who have been listening to the podcast for a while, I've I think I've mentioned a few times that I do not like beer. Uh, I never drink it. Usually, if we go to like a brewery or something, I'll drink cider. But I decided to try beer at two of the breweries we went to yesterday. They were both fruity beers. We'll talk a little bit more about it in the outro because we're going to shout out one of the breweries. But they they were tasty. The fact that Vanessa not only ordered beer, but then tasted it and enjoyed it was mind-blowing. I was so proud of myself. <laughs> we documented it. There will be pictures. We'll post oh, yes. them. Yes. We'll we post pictures. them on social media along with, you know, obviously pictures from this week's episode. So if you're not following us on Instagram or Twitter, you can find us uh, at a tap on the wrist. Yes. And as always, you guys can email us. With any story ideas um, or any cool places that you've been to that you think that we should check out, you can email us at tapontherestpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, we decided we're going to do a lot of day trips this summer, I think. Yeah. I don't know where maybe to. I'll find, maybe I'll find more beers that I like. Maybe. It's wild. Exciting. Wild ideas. But uh, so if you have ideas for day trips from New York City, bars to go to. Breweries, distilleries, wineries. Even though Laura's not a big wine person, but I'll go. You'll you'll drink some of the wines. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you'll find a wine that you really love. Like I found a beer that I like. Maybe. 
There's one wine out there I like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, but it's it's just getting so nice out. And it is starting to feel pretty normal. I mean, the CDC has now said that people who are vaccinated don't have to wear masks inside or outside. I don't know that I'm ready for that yet, but it's uh, nice to know that there's progress being made. <laughs> I think I will keep mine. It my feels mask. very sudden. Yeah, it's just, that's what it is. is it's just so sudden that, that, um... I can't get get it in my mind that that's okay, but but it, like I said, it's nice to know that things are kind of progressing and things are getting back to normalish, and uh, that we can kind of feel safe going to these different places and these different bars and breweries and experiencing them because I've I've missed it. Yes, I've missed getting like a good cocktail at a bar and agreed. Yeah, so. This week we've got two pretty interesting stories for you. Yes. Different. Very. One is modern day, which is not something we've talked about a lot. I feel like we've been very much in the past and history based. And the other one is in the past and history based. (laughs) True. But uh, again. But both amazing. Again, we are in season three where we're focusing on women in alcohol. So both of our stories are going to. Do that, and we hope you enjoy them. Today, I am going to tell you the story of Louise Weber. Have you heard of her? No, I have not. Okay. I had not either until this week, which is kind of strange because she's very well known, especially in France. Really? Yes, which is where her story takes place. So I do want to preemptively apologize for all of the butchering of the... The French. I tried to listen to a lot of the words, but I'm going to do that terrible thing where I try and mimic, and it's going to be a butchered French accent. This is like the first episode of me for the season. Yeah. It was full of French words. Or if I try and say them, I'm going to sound so American. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just, you know, I'm putting it out there. I'm sorry. Yeah. It is what it is. I, I feel you. It's It's rough. So, Louise Weber was born July 12th of 1866 in Alsace, France. Um, And Alsace is located in the northeast section of France, quite close to Germany and Switzerland. Okay. Uh, Louise's family was Jewish, and when she was young, they relocated to Clichy. Sure. I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is a suburb of northwest, just northwest of Paris. Okay. And there's not a lot known about Louise's young life because her family was quite ordinary. They didn't have a ton of money. Her th- There's nothing written about what her father did for a living or if he was in the picture. But it is always noted in every article that I read that her mother was like a laundress. Okay. Okay. Uh, and that's quite important because one of Louise's favorite pastimes as a young girl was to dress up in, like, the expensive and fancy clothes of her mother's customers while oh. she was laundering them and, like, dance around their home. Yeah. Uh, Louise loved pretending to be, like, a glamorous star on the great stage, which goes on to explain a lot about how Louise Weber grows up to become the queen of Montmartre. What is that? It's a neighborhood 
in Fr- France. Yeah. Um, it's actually like where Moulin Rouge is located. Ah, okay. Which is going to play a part in our story today. Okay. But she becomes like the queen of the cabaret, the queen of the can-can. Uh-huh. Um, she has another nickname that I'm gonna get, not going to give away yet. But oh, boy. she historically is one of France's most famous can-can dancers. Oh. I was very shocked I'd never heard of her name. And even looking at some of the pictures of her, I think I've seen them or the posters. Really? And I've like never, I just never did the the oh. due diligence. Should I wait to Google? To see I have lots of pictures oh, okay, to show okay, you. Okay, okay, good. Okay. And to show you guys at home, they'll be on our social media. Yes, correct. So her... Louise's passion for the stage started at a very early age, like I mentioned, but it's around the age of 16 when Louise begins sneaking off to the dance halls in smaller neighborhoods of Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was noted again that she would borrow the expensive clothes of her mom's customers because she didn't have any of her own yeah. and then go off dancing for the night and then Ooh. come back. And I was like, could you imagine if people did that with, like, like my laundry? You, yeah, <laughs> and, like, you drop off your laundry. They're like, let me take this out for a spin. <laughs> I guess then they clean it, but... Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. And it's here that she not only falls in love with performing, because she knew she liked that aspect, but she falls in love with, like, the stage and the audience. Mm-hmm. And so, while dancing around... Paris at all of these small clubs, Louise quickly becomes very popular because of her personality. She was electric when the spotlight was on her, and she quickly got audiences to love her for both her dancing skills and her, like, charming behavior, which in every article I read was described as audacious. I love it. Like I there's, love that word. <laughs> yeah. So here's just one picture. Okay. Of Louise. Oh, that's a split. Yes. I think she's on a table or a piano, but she's just like full dressed, full on split. She was like a character. Yeah. Um, and during her early career, she's known for really two kind of famous acts that people wanted to see her perform. Uh, the first one is where she would tease the male audience by raising her dress skirt and kind of swirling it all around, revealing a heart embroidered on her knickers. <sighs> and I just think, like, the idea of that is honestly so endearing and, like, hilarious. Like, I don't know. It just seems so funny to me. Like, I know why audiences would love that. Because, like, how funny is that? Yeah. she's dancing around, and then she, like, lifts her dress, and she's got, like, this heart shape on her underwear. Right. I don't know. It's just funny to me. And also probably so scandalous back then. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes. Another act that she was known to do, um, and this is one of her signature moves, was the high kick. It was when she would high kick, she would often flip a man's hat off with her pointed toe like oh my god I love that so much that was like her thing but she is often seen doing a high kick here's another picture of her damn she is flexible very flexible 
Um, and this picture is all over the internet. It's one that is seen a lot. But yeah. Um, so these are her two very like famous acts when she's younger, mm-hmm. and it's here that she kind of gets to know like the artsy crew of the Montmartre neighborhood of France, and she becomes, you know, um, quite popular with lots of artists. She's known at this time she's quite young to do lots of like nude modeling too. Mm-hmm. Which was, I don't know if it was scandalous for France at the time, but, like, there are pictures of her, like, topless modeling, and, like, she she was just, like, in the scene yeah. at the moment. And she loved it, but this isn't where she becomes infamous. Her infamy is not when she's younger. It's more when she's a, a little bit older, okay. and she joins the troupe at Moulin Rouge. So, I can't hear Moulin Rouge without thinking of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I love the movie so much. Well, I actually didn't do this research, and I probably should have. I wonder if any of the characters in Moulin Rouge are based on her. I bet they are. Oh. Because she is one of the most famous Moulin Rouge dancers or performers. Yeah. I didn't even think about that until just now. Oh, man. We're going to have to look into it. I we'll, bet we'll she is. We'll have to is. give an update, like, in our intro or something next yeah. week. Yeah. But um, it's here at uh, Moulin Rouge where she earns her most famous nickname, La Goulet, which literally in French translates to the glutton. Okay. And I'm going to tell you how she earns that nickname after I tell you a little bit about Moulin Rouge. Okay. So according to the people's source, Moulin Rouge... Or the Red Mill, Mm -hmm. as it translates to, because of its red windmill shape, opened in the year 1889, uh, and it is best known as the birthplace of the modern form of the can-can. Right. And the aim when Moulin Rouge was opened was to allow the very rich elite society of you know, downtown Paris Mm -hmm. to kind of come and quote unquote slum it (laughs) in the, the fashionable district of Montmartre. Okay. Cause that was like the artist district. Right. And so I have been to Paris, but I did not go to Moulin Rouge. I have been to the Moulin Rouge. I'm actually like scanning real quick to see if I took pictures there. But, um, Apparently, the original Moulin Rouge had a very extravagant setting. It's it's often talked about their outdoor garden, Mm -hmm. um, which was adorned with this ginormous elephant made of paper mache and like just a a stage where everyone performed. And it's said that it was inviting for people from all walks of life. So workers, um, residents of the neighborhood, artists, middle class, businessmen, elegant society from Paris, foreigners who were visiting, everyone kind of came to the Moulin Rouge and rubbed shoulders. Yeah. And they they came for the good time, the drinks, the mm-hmm. the dancing, the it was just a party. Yeah. Every night was a party at the Moulin Rouge. And so it's here that Louise makes a name for herself and she is quite possibly some people credit her as creating the can can Mm -hmm. others credit her as being like the queen of the can can yeah Uh, but this is 
what she did. Right. And based on that high kick photo, I'm not surprised that that's <laughs> what she became known for. And you know, the dance is quite seductive, uh, you know, and it leads to I mean, it it travels across Europe, it spreads to cabarets mm-hmm. across Europe and becomes worldwide famous. Mm-hmm. But it's said to originally like started at the Moulin Rouge. Right. Okay. So Louise is a headliner at the Moulin Rouge and she has so many nicknames. They call her the Toast of Paris, the Queen of Montmartre, the Queen of the Can Can, but La Goulie, like on her Wikipedia page, it's she's not Louise Weber, she's La Goulie. Okay. That is her most famous nickname. Right. Um, she is the highest paid entertainer of her day while at Moulin Rouge. And she earns this nickname because she is a glutton. Like, she fed on the energy of the crowd okay. with these these fun things, like the heart-shaped underwear. I was going to say, did she keep that while oh, she yeah. can-canned? Oh, yeah. Because that's part of the point of the can-can, right? Is, like, flash right. a little. Right. <laughs> um, and But the real reason she got the nickname is because she would grab any glass within her reach and chug it. There was... Damn girl. <laughs> no drink was safe when La Goulie was on stage. And that really became like her act. That's how she became known as the glutton. Yeah. Because as she was performing, she would just steal people's drinks and chug them. Okay. That would not fly in today's COVID world. No. <laughs> um, I don't think it would just fly, period. Yeah. COVID. Like the performer just stealing your drink and chugging it. I know, and you're like, I paid for that. <laughs> yeah, but it became like her signature move, and it was almost like people wanted her to take their drink. So the act, it's this act that was a crowd pleaser, and it's one of the things that would catch the eye of Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec. That sounds right to me. Great. <laughs> um, now, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec is an artist in France at the time, and he is also in his own right quite famous and world-renowned today. Um, But at this time, he would be holed up at the Moulin Rouge at a dark table, and it's here in Louise where he finds not only his muse, but a drinking partner and a lifelong friend. They form a very close bond, and she is immortalized in his portraits and posters all over the world today. Uh, she was one of his biggest muses in the late or the early 1890s. Both of them became very, very, very famous for very, very, very short periods of time okay. from about like 1890 to like 1905. Mm-hmm. And then not a whole lot happened. Right. But while they were in the height of their careers, they were inseparable. And so Moulin Rouge, the Moulin Rouge actually commissioned uh, Henri to create the posters that they would use for advertising. So like this is the poster I'm talking about. I already know what it is. Like I see it from the side and I've definitely seen that before. So this is a 100%. poster that Henri created. This is La Goulie. Yeah. Um, and, or Louise. And like this is recreated 
in kitchens around the world. Yeah, you know, like I've seen that a million times. It's a very famous French vintage poster, but it was created for the Moulin Rouge, and it's this this combo of them. And I, I mean, I would have never like pictured that in my head because I wouldn't, I don't, I didn't know what that meant. You know, right, right. But but yeah, it's super famous. Again, we'll post it on on social media. So. Toulouse-Lautrec is a French painter, printmaker, draughtsman, caricaturist, and illustrator. He has quite an interesting history. I didn't want to go into all of it, but... Because he's a dude. Well, yeah. <laughs> but he also, like, the fact that they were such good friends was, like, quite endearing to me because he had some kind of bone condition mm-hmm. where he, like, broke his legs when he was younger and his bones never grew so he had a full male sized torso but children's size legs he's only five foot tall oh wow and he was like often made fun of Aww. and like he was a recluse and that's how we found art and then he went on to be quite famous yeah um so i just kind of loved i just want to give that little bit of history for him because he is a very like well-known artist in his own right yeah um he actually does something really interesting yeah, so there's more to it. Um, and this is, and again, we'll post this picture on social media as well. This is his most famous portrait of Louise. Okay. I think uh, I have seen that too. And this is titled La Goulie at the Moulin Rouge. Okay. It is currently located at MoMA here in New York City. That's probably City. why I think I've seen it before. They said I did some research. It's not currently on display, but yeah. they do own the portrait. But it's like... Not her dancing, it's just her kind of entering the club in her a little super low cut. Super low cut, super V. Like everyone thinks J Lo did that super V first. But yeah. Look at this. Clearly she wasn't the first. Louise was rocking it. But yeah, so this is one of his most famous portraits of Louise and just in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he loved this art so much the year he completed it. He put it on exhibit four different times throughout Paris oh, wow. because he just thought it was a beautiful portrait of her mm-hmm. and was very proud of it. However, you know, you can't stay as the headliner at Moulin Rouge forever. Yeah. Um, after achieving lots of fame and fortune, Louise decides to part with the company and strike out on her own. So she invests a lot of her money into a show that she planned to kind of travel around the country. It was kind of, in some sources, it was a, a fair. In others, it was circusy. But, like, she was the dancing aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And while her fans had lined up to buy tickets to see her at the Moulin Rouge, they didn't do so with this new traveling oh, business no. venture. And it fails. Um, however, in 1900, she starts a new adventure and she gets married. A new and, adventure? Yeah. And her marriage, um, they don't even name him anywhere, but he was a magician. Okay. So again, they start like a traveling act. Um, her dancing, there are animals involved. He's a magician. She's like a, a dancing beast tamer. I It all sounded very confusing. Okay. Um, there were some incidents with animals attacking both her and her husband. Oh, damn. And this adventure also failed. 
So, following the closure of this second show, Louise decides to kind of disappear from the public eye. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's assumed that this is where her alcoholism kind of goes into a spiral. I mentioned, you know, she had the nickname, The Glutton, for chugging full glasses of alcohol Mm -hmm. and kind of making your career on that. You grow quite a tolerance. But... It spirals into a form of alcoholism. And after the failure of her second traveling act, it really partners with what many believe is a form of depression. So she begins to drink heavily and she ends up spending every piece of her fortune that she had made while dancing um, and kind of becoming a recluse and falling out of the public eye for many, many years. I know it's very sad. It is really sad. Um, However, in the year 1928, she is out of options. There's no mention of her husband. I'm not sure if they're divorced or he passes away. But Louise is alone. She is an alcoholic. She has no money. Mm -hmm. And she actually returns to the Moulin Rouge and wants to perform once again as La Goulie. But they turn her down. Oh. They do tell her she's welcome to be a vendor outside, however. So... How old is she at this point? So she was born in... What did I say? 56? This is 1928. She's, I mean, decent age. Yeah, yeah. 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 And she... So she, she starts vending out front of the Moulin Rouge, uh-huh. selling peanuts, cigarettes, and matches on the corner. Um... Many people walk right by her. They don't recognize her as, you know, the former queen of Montmartre. And, you know, age and alcoholism has changed her appearance quite drastically. I have a picture of what she looked like around this time. Oh my god, she looks completely different. Yeah. Wow. But it's known that when she did make a couple dollars, she would buy alcohol. And when she got drunk... They'd say she'd often stand on the street corner and shout, I'm La Goulie, can't you see it? I was the greatest star to ever perform here. Which is just so so sad. sad. I know, I know. 1929, Louise does die at the age of 62. And newspapers around the world announced her death. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was originally buried in the cemetery um, in Pantin, which is a Paris suburb. But later, her remains were transferred to the Cemetery de Montmartre to be mm-hmm. closer to the Moulin Rouge and where she was most infamous. And so, while she does have kind of a sad ending, I do think it is great that she did live such like this exciting lifestyle and mm-hmm. had this, you know, really important part in like the history of the Can Can and yeah, like just. Her nickname being the glutton because she could chug alcohol. Yeah. It's just so funny to me. Um, I know. I like, uh, I mean, obviously we can't because we don't have a time machine and they weren't recording film back then. But, like, imagine seeing one of her performances. They were probably, like, so electric. And like, I know. They, I didn't watch the video. Apparently, like, the only known video of her is, like, at the end of her life when yeah. she's kind of 
drunk and shouting on street corners and I like yeah. didn't want to watch that part. No. I didn't show you and I I guess we can post it. There is a picture of her from when she was modeling nude and like she was just like so confident. And, yeah. Like, she was so look at her face. She's like, yeah, look at me. What? Yeah. Look, she's like so confident. And, like I just these high kick pictures. We're gonna yeah. put all these on our social media so make sure you check them out. But um, she just lived such an interesting life. Even if it was, like, a short-lived career, it was, mm-hmm. like, super important. And she is one of the most well-known dancers yeah. from... And both of those pieces of art, the poster and the um, portrait of her, I I mean, when you guys see them, uh, you know, when you go to our, our Instagram page, you will immediately recognize them, too. Yeah. So that's the story of Louise Weber. So my resources today, I had two main articles in addition to the people source, but I used, again, this website I mentioned in a previous uh, episode, MessyNessyChic.com. Your new favorite website? It's my new favorite. (laughs) Honestly, the, the interesting thing she finds there, I mean, and it's not just women, like the history she writes about is so amazing. But she wrote an article called Meet the Fallen Queen of the Moulin Rouge, mm-hmm. all about Louise. And then I also have an article, uh, the article from myfrenchlife.org called Louise Weber, um, a.k.a. La Goulie, My Most Inspiring French Woman. So Amazing. both of those articles had lots of resources. And then, like, a couple things here and there. Like, MoMA website I used for Henri's information and things like that. But, um, yeah. Also, I feel like we should clarify for anyone who's, like, joining this podcast and, like, this episode randomly, the people source does mean Wikipedia. (laughs) Yes. I feel like sometimes we just say it and we just assume people know what we're going to talk about. And it just pops into my head. I was like... A random person might not know that we have dubbed Wikipedia. Well, the people source. That's what it is. (laughs) Okay, so for my story today, we're going to start off by talking about two women named Ivy Mix and Lynette Marrero. And this story is kind of jumping forward in time. It's present day, which we haven't done. Yeah, a lot of. Love that for us. Yeah. So Ivy is the co-owner and head bartender of... Leenda in Brooklyn, a bar, and Lynette is the bartender, is a bartender and mixologist who is now the bar director at the Llama Inn, which she opened in Brooklyn, as well as Llama San in Manhattan. There's a bar called the Llama Inn? Yeah, no, I want to go. Lego! (laughs) I mean, it's in New York. We can get there. So, I'm going to give you a little bit of a rundown of both of these women's backgrounds. So, first, I'm going to talk about Lynette Marrero. Lynette was a graduate of Columbia University, and she began her career at New York City's Flatiron Lounge, and that was under Julie Reiner, and she was part of the opening team at the Flatiron Lounge, and after studying mixology techniques, she made the move from cocktail waitress to bartender. After her time there, she moved to become senior bartender at Freeman's, and then she would go on to consult and co-design the bar program for Eletteria, I think is how you say it, in Manhattan's West Village. Lynette would then spend some time as a trade and mixology ambassador for Zacapa Rum, where she 
Shadow the Zacapa Rum Master Blender in Guatemala. After that, she would become a rum ambassador for a UK-based alcoholic beverages provider, Zayago, and that would be for two years. She would come back and create her own company called Drinks at Six. She also at one point was the national brand mixologist for Perrier Sparkling Water. So basically she's done a lot of awesome things. A lot of people have wanted them her involved with their brand. What did she go to school for? Like hospitality? I don't know, I don't know actually. Like, she graduated she... from Columbia. Right. So I like just wonder like what is it a business degree? And then she went on to form all these businesses, or did she like switch? It's just so fascinating. I know. I didn't I didn't see where what she studied, but Clearly, she knows what the hell she's doing. I know. Um, and obviously, like I, I had mentioned at the top, she now has the Llama Inn and Llama San, which Laura now wants to go to. I already saved it on my Google Maps. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Lynette, besides all of those things that she has done, has a hefty list of accolades. So these are from her website. She's won Time Out Eat Out Awards for Best New Cocktail Bar and Best Bar Restaurant Hybrid for her work as beverage director at Rye House. She's been honored by the James Beard Awards as one of America's leading female mixologists, 2009. She was named Food and Wine in Fortune Magazine's Most Innovative Woman in Food and Drink in 2015 and Wine Enthusiast Mixologist of the Year in 2016. She was also named in the Drinks International Bar World 100. And on top of all of these accomplishments, uh, some of which I'm sure I didn't even mention, Lynette also launched the masterclass.com mixology platform in March of 2020 and something else that we're going to get to in a few minutes. But basically, she's a very impressive lady. I now, want a cocktail mixed by her. I know. I, I would love <laughs> to try one of her drinks. Like, damn. And another badass lady who I would love to have make me a cocktail who is Ivy Mix, which also mixes like a great last name as a bartender. Yeah. <laughs> um, she grew up in Vermont and went to Bennington College and when she was 19 she visited Guatemala where she first delved into bartending and smuggling okay <laughs> as you do <laughs> I was reading her about me section on her website and it just very casually mentions that she smuggled special mezcals and tequilas over the border from Mexico into Guatemala <laughs> I was like okay I'm not calling her out. She very cash mentions that on her website. And while she was in Guatemala, she would go to a bar named Cafe No Se, which served drinks on an honor system. So in order to pay off her debt to them, that's why she started working as a bartender. And I guess smuggling alcohol. So she came back to New York City in 2008, and she started to work in an art gallery. Her family has like a very artistic background. But she hated it, so she decided to start cocktail waitressing uh, at a bar called Mayahuel, I think is how you say it, in 2009. Um, and that's kind of where she learned to appreciate craft cocktails as like an art form, like a way to combine her knowledge of alcohol with art. She then joined cocktail historian and bar owner Sinjin Frizzell. That's a job. Yeah. Cocktail historian. Yeah. I want that job. I know. <laughs> How do we become that? I love being a teacher, but other people's jobs are so much cooler. I know. I wonder how you, how one becomes a cocktail historian. 
What do you go to school for? Can we interview a cocktail historian on the podcast? Yeah, if we can find one, I damn well would like to. What's this person's name? Frizzell. We're going to find him. Yeah. I'm sure sure that there... We could Google it and find plenty of people. But I think it would be amazing to interview one. Anyway, they teamed up at Fort Defiance. And then in 2010, she was hired to be on the opening staff of... I believe it's Lonnie Kai uh, in Manhattan, by what should be a familiar name, Julie Reiner. Uh, I mentioned her in Lynette's bio a little as well, but she would work there before moving to Reiner's world-renowned bar, The Clover Club. Ivy would soon after that let Reiner know that she wanted to, to open her own bar, which focused on mezcal and Latin food, inspired by her time in Guatemala. So... With her backing, Ivy opens Landa, which is a pan-Latin cocktail bar, also in Brooklyn. It's right across the street from the Clover Club, and it opened in May of 2015. So we should go to Clover Club and Landa. I know, but I don't like Mezcal. (laughs) I'm sure they have drinks without Mezcal in them. Okay. I mean, I would go and have a drink, and I would drink Mezcal. I won't love it. (laughs) (laughs) So Ivy also has some great accomplishments to her name. In 2015, she was named American Bartender of the Year at Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards. In 2016, Ivy was named Mixologist of the Year by Wine Enthusiasts. And in 2019, her bar received a James Beard nomination for Outstanding Bar Program. Wow. Yeah, they're both super impressive and accomplished. Um, But why am I telling you about them both? Besides, of course, that they are awesome and they have... A similar mentor or a mentor in common. The reason is because in February of 2011 they co-founded a speed bartending competition for women in the United States called Speed Rack. Ooh, tell me more. <laughs> so according to Ivy's website, Speed Rack is quote a national cocktail competition that creates a platform for female bartenders while simultaneously raising money for breast cancer related charities. So not only did these like two wonderful women try to give voice to female bartenders, um, and what we've discussed became a very male-dominated industry for a while, but they're also raising money for some great charities and women-focused charities. Love that. Yes. So Ivy originally came up with the idea for this all-female speed bartending competition, and she bought it to Lynette, who at the time, among all the other accomplishments I listed for her, was president of the New York chapter of Ladies United for the Preservation of Endangered Cocktails. How do we join? Yeah. (laughs) I'm learning so many things I didn't know about modern cocktails. (laughs) Uh, It's an organization that promotes women in the spirit industry while raising funds for local and national charities. Um, So obviously this idea of a competition that promoted females in the spirit industry and raised money for charity was like right up this organization's alley. I'm about it. Yeah. Um, Obviously, Lynette loves the idea, and they got to work creating a competition that, quote, celebrated women, was created by women, and supported women in and out of the spirits industry. So Speed Rack gets its name from the shelf below a bar where well liquor is stored to make quick cocktails. Again, it's a speed competition. The point is to be fast. The website describes the competition as, quote, an exclusively woman high-speed bartending competition designed to highlight up-and-coming self-identifying females in the cocktail industry 
and give back to those impacted by breast cancer. Speedrap taps top female bartenders across the globe and puts them head-to-head -head in timed challenges. Regional competitions whittle down the applicant pool with 20 mixologists in each market vying for one of the 16 slots that will make it to the nationals. The competition ended up becoming a really great way for female bartenders to put their names on the map, and it also helped to create a supportive network of women. So through Speedrack, Ivy and Lynette were able to partner with some large liquor companies to offer scholarship opportunities, which helped female bartenders further their knowledge of the industry and their craft. And in an article from Forbes, Ivy was quoted as saying, we hardly saw any women working behind the stick in the best bars in the world. And when we asked why, we were told it was because, quote, no one knew any. So we decided to create a platform for women to stand on in a male-dominated industry to be seen. In recent years, it has become less about getting women jobs and more about creating a community of support. Especially in the current global climate, women are finding a real need to join together and create their own network. Which is great. I love it. I know. It's, it's really awesome. And I wanted to include this quote, another quote, from Haley Trube, I believe it's pronounced. Um, if not, I'm sorry. But she worked at Dutch Kills, which is a bar Ooh. that we both are very familiar with. Frequent um, flyers, one might say. <laughs> <laughs> and Fresh Kills, which is in Brooklyn. Dutch Kills is in Long Island City. And she was actually the winner. She was Miss Speedrack 2018. Because that's what the winners are called, Miss Speedrack. I, I mean, like, I've probably had a cocktail made by her. I know, and I wish I knew. But she said... Speedrack has the amazing ability to bring female bartenders from all across the country together to do two things, fight cancer and make drinks. I can say in confidence that I now have a sisterhood of bartenders across the U.S. all making huge strides in and out of the industry, and that's because of Speedrack. So it just sounds so awesome. I, I love this. Is, are you going to tell me when the next Speedrack is? Yeah, we'll get there. Okay, I figured. <laughs> but uh, I hope we have tickets. Uh, not yet. Okay. Oh, I mean, COVID. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is how the competition goes. I just, I like briefly described it up top, but this is in depth how it is. So part one is the application process. So bartenders apply online from all over the country and then from that pool of applicants, the 20 most qualified and talented bartenders in each market are selected. At, I think they're trying to kind of expand it, especially globally, but it was basically eight, eight markets that they were focusing on. So the next part, part two, is the qualifiers round. They make eight stops, again, eight markets, for these qualifying rounds around the country. So the bartenders would complete a qualifying round that tests their speed and aptitude in making four cocktails. And then the top eight people from each of the eight markets advance to the next round. Okay, so we're down to 64. Sure, I didn't do that math. <laughs> the top eight in eight oh, markets. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> okay, so then we got part three, which is the round robin elimination. So here, those bartenders from each market participate in bracketed round robin style competition. So basically, if you've ever done like a sports bracket, two people compete against each other, then the winner of that pair will compete against the winner from another pair, and so on and so on until it gets whittled down. And these are like instant elimination rounds. 
So in these rounds, the bartenders are given a cocktail from a list of 50 classic industry standard cocktail recipes to make. Then there are judges, which how do I become a judge? Uh, <laughs> who evaluate the bartender's drinks based on accuracy, taste, and presentation. Um, and then the fastest and most skilled woman will move forward to the next round. This all leads to the final showdown where one winner is named and then each local winner receives an honorarium to compete in the country's national finals where Miss Speedrack is crowned. Okay. So I mentioned that they donate their money to charity. And when I say that they donate the money they make to charity, I mean 100% of the money they make is donated to charity. They don't keep any of it. It's It all goes to breast cancer education, prevention, and research. The, they sell tickets to each you know stage of the competition and all of the proceeds from those tickets are donated. Um, they're of course able to do this because all of the supplies and locations are donated to the competition, so they don't need to keep the money. They get, you know, they get everything donated to them. Uh, the show is also run by volunteers, which sign me I'm, up. <laughs> I'm happy to be one. <laughs> and it's also sponsored by major liquor companies like Jameson, Stoli, and Bacardi. So in the first year that it ran, Speed Rack raised $250,000 and hosted about 400 female bartenders. And then to date, the competition has raised over a million dollars for charity, which is awesome. And because of this work that they've done, Ivy and Lynette were honored by receiving two Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards for Philanthropy and World's Best Bar Mentors, which, like, well-deserved. Right. Um, and as you mentioned, you may be curious about, like, what what's next for Speed Rack. Sadly, because of COVID, in 2020, last year, Speed Rack Season 9, which is the ninth, I like that they call them seasons, but it was like the ninth competition, uh, was postponed because of the pandemic. Um, however, even though they can't compete, Ivy and Lynette are still using Speed Rack to continue to help women and to build a network of support. So according to an article from vinepair.com, Speed Rack has shifted its focus to become a virtual outreach and consulting program geared toward helping women in the hospitality industry adjust to the new restaurant and bar landscape post-COVID. Wow. Which I think is really important and something that's needed because bars and restaurants were so affected right. by COVID. So in January of 2021, Speed Rack announced a, mentor, a mentorship initiative. They formed a Speed Rack advisory squad with about 87 mentors from all over the industry, including bartenders, bar owners, social media experts, brands, wine, beer psalms, and sommeliers from all over the world. The mentorship program runs in six-month increments, and its purpose is to create one-on-one -on -one relationships between women and leading industry experts who will serve as their mentors. Amazing. Even yeah. more amazing is that they're really focusing on giving priority to BIPOC women, so Black, Indigenous, and people of color, uh, in order to fight the barrier that race has played in career advancement within the alcohol industry. I love so, it. So, they're doing great things. Amazing. <laughs> uh, in an article from Bar Business Magazine, Ivy said, quote, the landscape of our industry is in a huge stage of flux right now. 
Now more than ever, we need we are in need of a sounding board for career choices within the hospitality industry. I'm thrilled to build upon the sorority, for lack of a better word, that exists within the women of the speed rack community and bring mentorship when people need it most. So they're really looking out for their people, which is amazing. Speed rack has also had some virtual events. They had a lot during Women's History Month in particular. So definitely check out their website if you're interested. They're also on Instagram at speed underscore rack. I just followed them. <laughs> if you, like Laura, want to follow along, uh, see when they might get back to competing or what they're doing virtually. But they have committed to finishing season nine of the competition. Uh, once things, like, you know, obviously are safer and they can find, like, the proper safety protocols protocols to follow you know whether they change the competition to being outside if it's only the people competing no audience they do want to finish out that season they still had one more regional to complete and then of course like the big final showdown so they are committed to doing that uh and you know i hope that one day we can attend because i'm so in i would love love to be there i would love to volunteer like if i don't i don't know if i can i don't know if it has to be I should have looked if you have to be, like, an industry person to volunteer. Um, I'm sure that they probably have normal volunteers, like, taking tickets and things. I'll do anything. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to be in the room where it happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so that that is the Speed Rack Women's Competition. Again, definitely check them out. But I did have some sources for today. I did use the people source a little bit because Lynette and Ivy are so awesome that they have their own Wikipedia pages. And I did use, I think I mentioned the About Me sections on both of their websites, as well as the About Me sections on speedrack.com. In terms of articles, I used an article from Forbes called All Female Bartending Competition Speed Rack is Back for its Eighth US Season by Chelsea Davis. Another article that I used was called Next Round, Lynette Marrero on Speed Rack's Advocacy and Education Efforts from Vine Pair. Um, and it actually links and has the transcript to a podcast that she was on, like she did an interview. And it's really interesting because it's it, it was recent, I think it was in March. So she's kind of talking about the future of the bar industry as well as the future of Speed Rack. But it's interesting because she talks about like cocktail kits like things you know that bartenders are doing and she also talks about how more people are becoming like home bartenders like making their own cocktails which is exactly what I did yep and I was like this is Laura she's talking about Laura uh and she was talking about how as an industry and as bartenders they're gonna have to try and find ways to become more creative because you know like they can't I mean, yes, you can just serve in a normal old-fashioned. People are going to want to just go out to socialize, but she thinks they're going to have to, like, do something cool to, like, basic cocktails to kind of get people to come back out since so many people have developed that skill. Right. Um, so it's just very interesting, and you should definitely check it out on Vine Pair. Uh, and lastly, I used an article called Speed Rack Announces Global Women Mentorship Program. Mentorship Program? I don't know why I keep saying that so weird. Mentorship Program which was on Bar Business Magazine. Very cool. Yeah. We're going one day. I'm in. Let me know. <laughs> well, now that we've established that we're going to Speed Rack. Who knows when that'll happen. Who knows when. It's now time to talk 
about our woman in alcohol feature of the week. And a place we can actually yes, go. Yes, <laughs> a place that we can and have gone yes. to. Uh, I think this might be the first brewery that we've talked about that we have actually gone to this season. So this week, Vanessa and I got to go to Tin Barn Brewery. Yes. Which is just outside of New York City in Sugarloaf, New York. Yes. And according to untapped.com, it is a farm brewery in the lower Hudson Valley that specializes in hazy New England IPAs, sours, and stouts. Yes. And we tried multiple beers. Yes. While we were there, and they were literally all delicious. They were. I enjoyed all, every one of them. Especially the one that I loved, which was Fruit Snacks Mixed Berry. Once I saw that there was a, ba- a beer that was labeled Fruit Snacks, I was like, must try. If I'm going to like a beer, it's going to be that one. And I was right. It was yeah. the first beer in years that I've tried and really genuinely enjoyed I actually got a cider at the same time, and the cider was also very good, also highly recommends, but I actually preferred the beer, which is a novelty. I think you got a second one, didn't you? I did. I got a second one. (laughs) Um, But it is female-owned. It is female-owned. So, basically, the, the story goes that the owner, Lauren, it's Lauren Van... Pamelin, right? I think that's how you say it, and I'm we're sorry if it is not. Yes. But Lauren was not a beer drinker until about 2009. Just like me! Yeah. <laughs> and then she tried this hazy IPA, fell in love with it, decided she wanted to create a brewery of beers that she loved. Mm-hmm. And I think this has kind of been her baby project, you know, for the past few years... And then she actually partnered with her father. Yes. And they were able to open Tin Barn Brewery just this year. Yeah. I actually, in an article from HV Mag that I was reading, it says that Lauren, at first, she, like, got a home brewing kit and was, like, making beers at home in her kitchen. And then she decided to, with the help of her father, make an actual brewery. Yeah. I'm so glad she did. <laughs> so, uh, Tin Barn is pretty great because, A, the space is phenomenal. Yes. It's, a, it's literally a giant barn. The brewery is, you can see it when you walk in. You can see all of the the equipment, so you know it's brewed on location. Yeah. Uh, they have a wonderful indoor space if you are into sitting inside they have a great outdoor space as well yep they were like seating putting up a building a deck yes i know they're gonna have like live music all summer and things like that so it should be i mean i think it's going to be a really great place to spend some summer weekends if you are in the area or just want a day trip from new york but percent uh and i i do want to say that lauren she, did, she didn't just go from home brewing to, like, having a brewery. She did, this article notes, enroll in an intensive brewing science and engineering program through the American Brewers Guild in Vermont. And she earned her certificate and then went to log hands-on hours at Oyster Bay Brewing Company in Long Island. So, you know what? Even if she did just go from home, from home brewing, brewing to 
her brews are great. Like I know. And I love the fact that the beer that I found that I finally really enjoyed was made by a woman who also hadn't enjoyed beer until she like found the right, found the right one. Like it just seems so it's so cute. Such so a cute can... little story. Yeah. <laughs> it was meant to be. Meant to be. So we will post pictures from our trip to Tin Barn Brewery as well as tag them on our social media. If you aren't following us, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. Yes, and if you have any ideas of women in the alcohol industry that we should talk about, any breweries you think we should visit or bars that we should go to, especially female-owned ones, please email us at tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. And we highly recommend you go to Tin Barn. Yes. And, highly. And try some fruit snacks. Try some fruit snacks. Although the other IPAs are great. Mm-hmm. I had a banana pudding chocolate chip cookie stout. Yes. Uh, they seem to come out with pretty unique flavors. Yeah. So. Just get there. Try it. Get there. And if you can't support other women-owned breweries in your town, and let us know about them. Definitely. Cheers. Cheers.